0: Welcome to the Newson Health Menopause Podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Newson, a GP and menopause specialist, and I'm also the founder of the Menopause Charity. In addition, I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Clinic here in Stratford-upon-Avon. Today on my podcast, I'm really delighted and excited to introduce to you Paul Anderson, who's actually my husband and also a great friend and mentor and has known me since day one of medical school so i've hooked him in to talk about various things today so thanks paul for joining me today
1: i didn't have much choice
0: (laughs) so paul as many of you might know is a consultant surgeon and has a very full-on career And the last few years has really been instrumental in helping me escalate my career despite us having three children. So we do live in organised chaos, I'd like to think. But Paula, I just wanted to talk various things really today. But I'm very intrigued because when we were both at medical school, I don't know about you, but I don't remember learning anything about the menopause at all. And certainly my first 15 years as a doctor, it wasn't really in my radar at all. And I think about the thousands of women I misdiagnosed and not even thought about and I know you had the same training as me so I presume you had the same lack of knowledge about the menopause as me
1: yeah but I mean as a urologist and seeing postmenopausal women with UTIs I was aware of the changes that happened you know with the vaginal floor and what have you when you go into a low estrogen state so I knew about that but only specific to how they presented to a urology clinic but you're right yeah it was wasn't covered at all at medical school.
0: No so we'll talk a bit about your career in a minute but you had a very general urological training and part of that is urinary tract infections UTIs as you say which are more common in women than men aren't they? Yeah totally
1: well you know your urethra is a design fault it's four centimetres of straight line and it's not going to keep out UTIs that's part of the problem and of course when you go through the menopause you lose that sort of vascular sponginess of the urethra and you lose that coaptation where the centre part of your water pipe closes on itself and forms a good valve. That's certainly one of the reasons they get UTIs. Also the change in flora with a pH, with a change in the uh, oestrogen status, you know, in the area of the introitus,
0: Which is all very obvious, and it's even more obvious to me as a menopause specialist that if you replace the missing hormone that's causing it, even locally by giving local vaginal oestrogen, then that will really improve symptoms and also infections. But certainly that wasn't really a treatment that I was taught about. There's lots of recurrent antibiotics that were and still are given to women. But thankfully, obviously, in your practice, you do give vaginal oestrogen, but it's not generally common in all urological practice, is it?
1: Uh, no, unfortunately not. And in fact, I've been present at conferences where people have said things like, you know, well, you could give HRC, but it carries risks. And, you know, I'm putting my hand up at the back because I've proofread all your stuff over the years. and I think I'm pretty knowledgeable about the menopause. And I say, no, no, you're talking rubbish. You know, the risks are vastly overstated for HRT. So unfortunately, no, not all urologists are using HRT as freely as I uh, would like them to. Or you would like them
0: to. Yes. <laughs> And what's been the response when you did that in the lecture when someone was talking about the perceived risks of HRT and you challenged it?
1: It's pretty easy to challenge a urologist on HRT. They don't know that much about it. So as soon as I say you're talking rubbish about the risk of stroke when you have it transdermally, they just tend to shut up. And when I say the risk of breast cancer, massively overstated, as has been discussed in many of your previous uh, podcasts. If indeed there is actually the real risk there, then they tend to not really challenge.
0: But it's a real shame because these people are seeing women all the time and it can really make a difference. And as urologists, urologist, you still prescribe obviously your surgeons, but you can prescribe medication. And certainly over the last few years, you've told me quite a few stories where you've even seen men who have problems and have actually turned to their partner in the consultation room, uh, female partners, and helped them, haven't you?
1: Yeah, totally. Because I specialise in male genital surgery. So I see lots of men who, for instance, have Crohn's disease and they've got a curved penis. And I'll look at their erect penis and I think it's not that bent. You know, what's the actual problem? And what they've got is a postmenopausal wipe is very dry. And that's why sexual intercourse is difficult. And so then, of course I direct them to your excellent evidence based yes. website. Very good. And
0: speak to
1: their you know, GP and get on to HRT. Along well, with all the you know, health benefits they'll get in terms of osteoporosis and uh, the risk of dementia being decreased, what
0: have you? Which is amazing, isn't it? And certainly at medical school we always taught ninety percent of the diagnosis is in the history, and patients will tell you if you ask them the right questions, and your history taking has always been a lot better than mine because you like detail and you go into things in a lot more depth than me. but it's very interesting that you can twist this consultation and see men who think they've got the problem and it's actually the woman. And I wonder so much in so many consultations in secondary care how much is being misdiagnosed or not even being diagnosed at all
1: yeah, definitely because even in my general urological practice seeing females with you know blood in the urine due to uh, water infections, if I will say to them, "Well, I think you should be on HRT, they're often under the impression that you know HRT is dangerous or they've asked the GP in the past, they've said no, no you, you shouldn't have that because three relatives six centuries ago once had. A whiff of breast cancer. They've been scared of it.
0: Mm. You're absolutely right. I think it's not just GPs, it's all healthcare professionals, nurses, pharmacists have been really scared of thinking about HRT and let alone prescribing it. And now what's really happened is people don't know how to prescribe it and they feel that it's too difficult. And when they try and get guidance from the British National Formulary, our Bible for medication, it still lists all their perceived risks, so then it can be quite scary. So I know there's a lot of people out there who would often quite want to prescribe HRT, but don't know where to start.
1: Mm. I think you're totally right. I think that the inserts or what the MHRA put is just scaremongering mainly. Mm.
0: So hopefully, with some of the work, certainly that I'm doing with NHS England, we're hoping to really change that and make a difference, because I think it's all about, as you say, trying to be evidence-based in our practice, and certainly we do in everything else that we try and do in our clinical practice that we should do with HRT prescribing as well. So, but also
1: just the local estrogen.
0: Mm.
1: You know, you have that genius idea, which you spoke to uh, Tamsin Greenwell, who's valley high in the section of female urology, about using E-string, which is that estrogen-impregnated ring for elderly female residents mm. In nursing homes, we often come in with sort of UTIs. If we could improve the local conditions mm. of their you know, vagina and introitus and decrease their UTIs, that would be great. I think we are starting to listen to you within the urological community. I believe that you may be part of our next national conference, even.
0: I hope so. I hope so. I think the more people that I can convert, the better. You know, it does make a big difference, but it's hard work. It's really hard work being listened to, as you know, and... I would like to sort of publicly say that you've actually been a great mentor because it all looks like I'm doing incredibly well. You know, I've got a number one bestseller. I've got a great website. I've got an amazing app with a huge number of downloads from people all across the world with incredible reviews. But actually, it's been really hard work, hasn't it? And without you, I would have just fallen over so many times. Because it's very hard when you expose yourself. And I think especially as a medic, and especially as a woman, maybe, I don't know what you think. But I think it would be easier if you have been doing this work and not me. What do you think?
1: I could probably prescribe HR to efficiently. I don't think you could operate um, vaguely, to be honest. But I think, you know, over the years, you've got much more thick-skinned. Mm. You know, you put people on the podium, and then you just want to knock them off them. And um, you know that as an absolute fact, that, you know, people focus on the fact that you have a private clinic, but they don't focus on the fact all the time you give to NHS England and the educational programs, which you've just written off and done for nothing, and hundreds of thousands have gone into your educational research program. Yeah, so I get quite angry on your behalf when people keep knocking you, as you know.
0: Mm. I suppose I'm quite naive because I'm fairly transparent. I think that everyone's really going to help because that's why we went into medicine, wasn't it? To help people and it still is. And it's a great privilege being a doctor. But I know when I started my clinic and as many of you listening know, it was only set up privately because there wasn't capacity and there still isn't capacity for more NHS menopause work. And I couldn't find a job locally, either in general practice or in secondary care to work in a menopause clinic. But quite soon after I started, I got quite a few letters of complaint from other colleagues, also from women, quite nasty messages on social media. And I quite often would go to bed crying and say, I can't do this, Paul. I really can't. This is awful. I didn't expect it. And I remember you saying, just remember the last patient you saw. You've just told me about a woman who you've helped. But it's it's really difficult. It would be very easy to give in if you hadn't uh, But you also helping you, me.
1: You used to keep that golden notebook in which you wrote down the inspiring stories about mm. what really how the suicidal women were no longer mm-hmm. suicidal the people that wouldn't leave their house that woman had to buy a camper van to come down to see you the people with tesco's carrier bags for the ridiculous supplements that don't actually do anything and all those people you've improved so yeah i'd say to you would just look in your golden book and forget those people who are after you and a lot of those other doctors who are going on about you at the start it was just jealousy over you know, it's all comes down to money. I thought you mm. their private income, and they're still beaving away in private and doing absolutely nothing for research and education.
0: Mm. But it's perceived, isn't it? I think I don't have a jealous bone in my body, really, because I think everyone's got another story, and I think it's very easy to look at me, even now with a clinic. It's been open three years, and we're now the largest menopause clinic in the world. But I'm not actually proud of that, which sounds really silly, but I'm I'm not because it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be that it's so hard for women to reclaim their own hormones. It's just unheard of in any other area of medicine where there's a, a waiting list, as long as mine, with that many doctors for something that's so cheap and easy. And certainly, you know, you, you do some private work, but people come and seek you out. But the waiting time is nothing like it is for my clinic. And it's wrong, isn't it, that women should be suffering in this way.
1: Yeah, totally. Another thing that people realise that your goal is that GPs are educated to the extent that they give out HRT appropriately and freely and for Mm. the patients want it and only people who specifically want to come and see you privately should pay money to come and see you but ideally every woman should get it from their local GP with no issues and that's your end goal. Mm.
0: Absolutely I certainly didn't set up to have as many healthcare professionals working with me as they do but it's also incredibly rewarding and to have time with people to know that you're giving them the best treatment and the best advice is really rewarding and certainly you know I think I've already said quite a few times that the work I do really is transformational and it really can improve not just the women's lives but those around them but your work is very different to mine you've already said you do male reconstructive surgery so me that can't even cut a piece of paper neatly in half would never be a surgeon. And I have very little knowledge actually about urology and men's health. So what you do is completely different, but it is also transformational, isn't it? Just explain a bit more about what you do, Paul.
1: So I'm what they call a genital urethral reconstructive surgeon. So I specialise in surgery to rebuild the male genitalia, which will be the penis, you know, the water pipe, essentially, mainly the water pipe these days, to be honest. And so men can be born with a condition called hypospadias, where the water pipe opens up in the wrong place, and they might have a penis that curves down. And I can do operations rebuilding water pipes using their foreskin and getting their penis straight. I see men who are in car crashes, and their water pipe gets ripped off their prostate. And then when they're finally well enough to undergo fairly complex surgery, I'll plumb them together again. I had a period in which I was fairly well known when I was doing the reconstruction with a colleague. Uh, the queen elizabeth with all the soldiers who were blown up in afghanistan and that was nicely covered in gq hidden trauma if you google that you'll be able to read about all the work we did with the soldiers so anything that goes on down there that requires a surgical solution as opposed to creams or drugs or injections that's the kind of thing i can offer to my uh, patients i did about seven years of embarrassing bodies you know with you and that was really good because patients saw what was available and they could say well i've I've had this condition for years. I didn't know anyone could help me. You know, I saw this guy on a telly last night. I want to be referred to him or someone like him. And I still see people like that, you know, with the repeats on telly.
0: It's very interesting because obviously, as everyone knows, the menopause affects all women, yet very few of us get taught about it at medical school. What you deal with does not affect all my thankfully but again it's something I was never taught about at all and you're quite right as a GP if I wasn't married to you I wouldn't have known about the surgery and sometimes you make a new water pipe out of the lining of the cheek don't you that yeah. tissue there and it's incredible surgery that you do isn't it I do feel sorry for our children when they know that you're a penis doctor I'm a menopause specialist you know but the uh, photos that uh on your computer are mind blowing, actually, these before and after pictures. But just explain how you got into even doing that because it's not, again, something that you would have been taught about as an undergraduate.
1: Oh, gosh. Well, I suppose the first thing I say, it doesn't really matter too much. The GPs don't know much about what I do because virtually everyone who's referred to me is from a consultant urologist. There's someone with a urological problem with poor flow would get referred off to urology department. They'd find out they needed someone like me because their problem was not their prostate. It's narrowing of the water pipe. I got into it because I always wanted to do surgery. I used to watch MASH when I was younger. I'm 52, so that ages me. But I always wanted to be a sort of army surgeon. And then going through my training, I thought the way would do gut surgery. And then whilst I was going through my training, I worked for a guy who inspired me called Steve Payne at Manchester Royal Infirmary, who we're still in touch with. And he was a urologist, and he sort of persuaded me to look into urology. And then I worked for another inspirational surgeon called Ivor Bracker in Russell Hall, who was one of the sort of godfathers of genital reconstruction. And when I worked for him, I thought, gosh, this is exactly what I'd like to do. It's really meticulous. It's very fiddly. There's not many people that do it. You can really transform people's lives. It's a quality of life operation. There's no. I don't do any cancer surgery. But you can really improve the quality you know, of people's lives. And patients do say to me, just like I say to you, you know, it's transformational. When I see them in clinic, know three months or five years later, Mm. and so I ended up just doing open surgery. I don't do robotic, I don't do laparoscopic. I just use a knife and fork, as we say. So just you know, cutting with a scalpel and scissors. But I tend to use small stitches, and it's all quite delicate, and often done at depth down a hole.
0: Mm. And I mean, you are artistic, aren't you? Your mother has the most amazing talent. And we'll just explain Not what
1: doistic. that's so very nice of you to say that, well,
0: you're both, but,
1: <laughs> but Most of are,
0: well, it's good, you have to be single minded like
1: to do something well over and over and over again. The two do go hand in hand.
0: so explain about your mother because that's where you've got your artistic skill from, I think
1: Yeah, so my mum was um my mum is you know she used to work for Swallow Rainwear uh, and other fashion companies, and she was a fashion designer. And she used to make her own clothes to an extremely, sort of you know, high standard ball gowns and all that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, she's very artistic, obviously all the sewing. When I was brought up, I was, you know, making curtains at her knee and helping with the sewing machine and all that sort of stuff. So, yes, it was a, a good combination of art and sewing that she gave me a background in prior to me becoming a surgeon.
0: And of course, your father was medical,
1: wasn't he? Yes, that uh, was a GP. He started off in surgical training, and then he moved across into being a GP in, in uh, inner city Birmingham, and then he moved out to Southern Coalfield, Four Oaks specifically. And he was a single handed GP for decades there. But he did surgery as
0: well, didn't he? His he did. He started
1: off doing surgery because, uh, well, back then, you know, GPs did everything. So, and the needlers would come to his practice, and he would do. You got to realise that era this was. you know, they would do terminations they would do tonsillectomies, occasionally even did appendicectomies. And when we cleared out the surgery, when he retired from being a GP, we found all sorts of specimens which we had to get in touch with the Home Office Pathology Department to be allowed to get rid of because of lots of bits of bodies he'd removed over the years. But that was normal back then. He was a GP in the post-war years.
0: Mm, so very, very different. Very, very different, different GPs
1: yeah. now. So you're single-handed, often on call a lot, he was part of the obstetric flying squad in Birmingham, so he tells stories about but in the back of an ambulance trying to squeeze a woman's cervix shut if so they're having a postpartum hemorrhage. So if you've given birth and you're bleeding a hell of a lot, there was a way of clamping at the top of the vagina with your hand. And he'd tell me stories about, you know, all this exciting sort of surgery. And that was very inspirational as well. My father was an inspiration on that.
0: Mm, very much so. So he would be very proud of what you're doing today, that's for sure. But... Covid's changed your work, it's changed everyone's work to unrecognisable and obviously the demands on you as an NHS surgeon have really increased but you also did a lot of charity work which you really want to do again so just explain a bit about the charity work because I think it's really amazing what you've been doing.
1: That's been the most rewarding actually so for the past five years, well not six but you know one was sort of Covid, I would go out to Africa twice a year And I was the lead in Zambia, Lusaka, and I was part of the team in Owasa, Southern Ethiopia. And I've been to other low-resource income countries as well. And we would train the surgeons in doing my sort of surgery. Because, you know, if you've got some young African guy and he's got a narrowing of his water pipe and he can't pee... Then they get stones in their bladder. They can't work. They have a catheter. So that's a tube that comes straight out of their belly, below the belly button. And if they can't work, they can't support the family. And they may have a family of 15 people to support because they are young and fit. So they have financial catastrophe. So going out there and operating on them, maybe I only operate on, you know, 10 people in five working days because they very difficult surgeries. But I've been training the surgeons over there, and they've been operating whilst I, in between you know the times I you know come back and so they're treating many of these men now and they're getting good outcomes and so yeah we are preventing financial catastrophe Mm. for these young men who otherwise had a catheter through their belly couldn't work repeated water infections bladder stones so it's great and also it's a busman's holiday but it's what I love doing you go out there they, they treat you very nicely it makes you adapt a lot working in operating theaters with no air conditioning and sometimes the power goes off and you know, it's difficult, but you come back and you've grown as a surgeon and you've also grown as a person. You start to really respect what the NHS delivers. Mm. Yeah, I love it. But unfortunately, the vaccination programs in, in countries which are poor is terrible. So God knows when they're gonna stop being red zone and I can get back out there and operate with my friends and help, you know, the patients who are waiting for us.
0: Yeah, I remember the very first time you went, you came back absolutely exhausted. I think you slept for nearly a week because emotionally. Physically and psychologically was really draining for you. But I remember not so long ago, you got a letter from someone who'd been in an orphanage, hadn't you? A really lovely letter. Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah, well remembered. So that was it. Thanks. That's right. The owners of the orphanage were friends with the surgeon I work with. And when they realized it was me, they got a message from him to me saying how his life had improved he was able to work again and how happy he was and yeah it's very satisfying very satisfying I can't wait to get back out of there I just don't know when I'll be there
0: mm. but I think people don't realize I think over here there's lots of people aren't there that live with catheters but they can still work they can still hold down a job and family but it's not the same in other
1: countries, is it? Well, even if they had lots of money, you know, a hot country and catheters not great. You get dehydrated, you get sediment. But these are people who can't change their catheters regularly. So you see people who've got a big fat catheter going through their belly. It's not been changed in two years. And you're doing the operation to fix them. And then you find there's a great big lump of stone stuck onto their catheter. And you've got to do another operation to sort that out as well. So these poor people are just, oh, I don't know, it's... They're getting by, but it's nothing like, There you know, people in this country, there'll be there'd probably be tens of thousands of people in this country walking with catheters, you wouldn't know. They're well mm. trained. they have fresh, sterile supplies, they keep themselves clean, they've got support from district nurses, and they're fantastic, they're clinical nurse specialists as well, in hospital, and they just get on with their lives. But if you've got, you know, no money in a hot country and the healthcare system is not ideal, you know, they have all sorts of trouble with them.
0: But even catheters in Western countries can be really unpleasant actually and I think yeah like you say people can manage but I know even after an operation I had I had a catheter for a short period of time and it was removed and I couldn't wait so I went into what's called retention and um, in fact I probably shouldn't be showing this but you catheterized me because I was in so much pain and I knew it would take me too long to get to hospital and the relief I had afterwards was incredible and it just made me realize for so many people especially men go into attention more don't they than women how disabling it can be and it seems quite a trivial thing having a catheter when there are people with you know other diseases or other conditions but with covid and the waiting list and the way the nhs is really creaking at the seams you're seeing a lot of people that are waiting so much longer aren't they
1: but you always find that the cancer surgeons will grab the glory because they've saved someone's life. Mm. But one of the things that attracted me to urology when I was doing the general urology training was the old men with prostate problems who went into retention. They had a catheter. You did an operation on them. You know, it took you about 45 minutes with the older techniques of being in hospital one night, maybe two. But then you get the catheter out and they're peeing and they would almost be kissing your feet. Yeah, mm. And you could just see how much you improve the quality of their life mm. for an operation that isn't that difficult. And it was lovely. And it was one of those things that, like I say, attracted me to that specialty. Mm. I still do that now, but it's not the prostate that's the issue. It might be, for instance, I saw a skateboarder today who fell astride a bar and completely wrecked his part of his body called the perineum and smashed up his water pipe, and he needs surgery. But he's having very poor quality of life with a catheter through his belly at the age mm. of 13. He can't know, work properly and he's getting pain. And so I know that once I sort him out, he will be incredibly grateful. He'll just get on and go back to his work and being a productive member of society and being very happy again.
0: But how long is he going to have to wait before you can do his operation? Well,
1: you know, it's awful to say, isn't it? But I mean, he won't wait that long because I do expedite surgery for younger men with catheters in who can't work. A lot of men with catheters can still work. So I'd like to say he'll be around three for four months. My secretary. I hope she's not listening, because the normal waiting times at the moment is about twelve to fifteen months, which is mm. awful. absolutely awful. I
0: mean, you're very calm, and I'm very vocal. I get very frustrated when people have to wait, but it's out of your control, isn't it? You can't work any harder. There's very few specialist surgeons like you, and I know you do a lot of teaching and training, but it's not quite as easy as prescribing HRT. Actually, learning the skills that you have. And this is a real art form. It's not something that every, I could teach most people, I think, to prescribe HRT and give really good quality menopause education and care. But you certainly can't train everyone to become a surgeon, certainly not a reconstructive surgeon. It's also
1: time-consuming. A mm. very common, increasingly common problem in Britain and the world is buried penis through to obesity.
0: Mm.
1: Those surgeries take three, four hours. You can only do two in a day. Mm. You only have to drive past a bus stop and there'll be 10 people that probably need that surgery standing there. The demand is just immense.
0: It's really interesting talking about quality of life because it's not just the length of life, it's the quality of life. And I think that's even more important. And a lot of us during lockdown have really reflected and thought about what our lives mean. But also it's about trying to be as healthy as possible, which obviously we all know is really important. But being healthy and having a good quality of life are key, but so many people can't do it because they're not receiving the right care and treatment or that treatment is being delayed for whatever reason. So it's through no fault of theirs. But it's very hard to measure quality of life, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't get anywhere through the same volume of patients as yours. And for me, there's that definite point to which, you know, before the operation and after the operation, and you can certainly see the increase in their quality of life and what they do. So it's a bit more black and white for me and with smaller numbers to compare them to. Mm.
0: But it's still there. So it's certainly what you're doing is amazing and so I hope I know we've gone off topic and we haven't spent the whole time talking about the menopause but I just thought it'd be really interesting for some of you to listen to because I know a lot of the light gets shot on me but you know they always say behind every good man there's a wife at home helping so I think the other way around is I would not be able to do the work that I do or work as hard as I do or have children that are looked after as well without your support and I think it's quite amazing that you Can help support me so much when you've got a full time job and a really huge demands on your career. So publicly thank you. But before we finish, I don't know that you listen to my podcast, but I always have three take home tips. So you're not going to be excused. So I would like to ask you just to go back to how we started the podcast, actually talking about lack of training. What three reasons do you think urologists should have menopause training? How do you think three things that would help if Urologists had menopause training as standard.
1: Okay, first of all, I was going to quickly say that if people think consultant surgeons work long hours, which they do, their hours are nothing compared to Louise Newson running a menopause, like of 120 employees and constantly dealing with work. So I just put that out there. But three reasons why urologists know about menopause. One, it's going to affect 50% of the population if they live long enough to undergo a menopause. Two, when they get menopausal atrophy uh, with a lack of oestrogen and the change in the vagina flora, genito-urinary syndrome of the menopause, that was it, I was looking for that. They need to know about that so that we can adequately treat UTIs. And actually, just in general, just to commend to the women that we see that the health risks have been overstated with HRT and the health benefits greatly outweigh the risk for the vast majority of women. So we should be part of just in the way that we've been told to recommend to patients they should lose weight for their general health. Perhaps when we see postmenopausal women with or without UTIs, we should be saying, actually, have you thought about going on HRT for the future health benefits? Because after all, just as so you're saying, if you keep the population healthy, they'll be staying out of the hospital. They won't be coming in with, you know, their funny cardiac arrhythmias, their joint pains, all that sort of stuff. You know, I know from listening to you over the years how much people are improved And that study that you did in which they went to go and see 10 different specialties before they ended up being diagnosed as being when the poles were going to HRT and all their cardiac arrhythmias and their fibromyalgia and their joint pains all disappeared and they stopped taking up time in hospital. So, yeah, those are my three reasons.
0: Very good. So hopefully you can help implement some training for your colleagues, which will be very good for all the people that they see and help so thank you very much for your time today paul and i hope you can go back to doing some of the dishwasher stacking and washing because there's plenty that needs doing so thanks very much i'll go and do it now For more information about the perimenopause and menopause, you can go to my website, menopausedoctor.co.uk, or you can download our free app called Balance, available through the App Store and Google Play.